This is an NBC News special report. Here's Savannah Guthrie. Hi, everybody. Good morning. We come on the air with breaking news from the Supreme Court at this hour. The justice is deciding on a pair of cases for sweeping implications here for the First Amendment, anti-discrimination laws, as well as student debt. And the court has just ruled now on the first of those cases. It features the owner of a Colorado web design company who did not want to create wedding websites for same-sex couples. And the court has held that that website designer does not have to, that free speech is her right and that Colorado's anti-discrimination law cannot force her to com- to uh, to do this website for same-sex couples if she does not want to. So let's go right to uh, NBC's Laura Jarrett, who's reading this decision along with me. Here we go again. So here's a case where the Supreme Court has reversed the lower courts and said this wedding website designer cannot be forced to provide this service, web design, in contrast to something that she believes, which in her case is that same-sex marriage is not valid. A major decision for states across the country that have anti-discrimination laws like Colorado trying to enforce them. But in this case, the high court in a divided ruling has ruled in favor of Lori Smith, that graphic designer who, as you mentioned, says that she wants to make wedding websites, but she hasn't actually made any thus far. But she says she fears being fined under Colorado's law, which applies to all public accommodations accommodations, which says as long as you're holding your business out to the public, you have to treat everybody equally, which means you can't discriminate on the basis of someone's sexual orientation. And in this case, they say that violates her right to free speech. Now, she has said in interviews that she's actually happy to make other types of websites for gay individuals. So it's not just that she doesn't want to discriminate, but she says in particular when it comes to marriage, that's something that she opposes. Now, of course, this is a court that has largely ruled in favor of those who have made uh, religious freedom type of arguments before. But we should note, this is a different type of case. This is on First Amendment grounds. And so it doesn't depend on the fact that she has a religious objection to it. She could have actually objected to it for any reason, as long as it's about her free speech. Now, one of the things we're going to be looking for as we dissect this opinion is where is the line? How does the court decide that she, as an artist, has that right? But what about a florist? What about a wedding caterer? Those are typically businesses, again, open to the public that cannot discriminate. And one of the things that certain uh, liberals on the court brought up at oral argument was how are you supposed to handle a situation in which somebody decides they don't want to serve an interracial couple? In other words, discriminating on the basis of race. Everyone kind of gets their arms around that situation and can say, that doesn't seem like that would pass muster under the Constitution. But in this case, how is it different? How is it different in the case of uh, somebody who wants to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation versus race. That's one of the things that we're now going to be looking for. But the major headline here is that the high court has ruled in her favor. And now uh, we'll see what happens next. And we we have this six uh, conservatives, ideological conservatives on the bench in the majority here. The opinion is written by Justice Gorsuch in dissent. Once again, Sotomayor, Kagan and and Jackson and Justice Sotomayor in dissent says today the court for the first time in its history grants a business open to the public a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class. I mean, this goes back to what you were just talking about, Laura, which was how you viewed this case. 
the, the question presented was whether or not a wedding website was an act of free speech, in which case you can't compel to say someone to say something they don't agree with, or was it kind of an off the shelf product like a, a pair of shoes or something that you could buy. And if you put those for sale, you have to sell them to everyone under public accommodation laws. And the court is clearly saying this is an exercise of free speech. And this wedding website designer cannot be forced to put out a message she does not agree with. And there was a lot of debate about whose speech is it, right? A lot of the members of the court, particularly Justice Sotomayor, said, wait a minute, isn't it the couple's free speech? Isn't she actually just doing whatever the couple want? And clearly Justice Gorsuch, on behalf of the majority, is saying no. When she makes that website, it's actually her free speech. It's her creative, unique art uh, that she's putting out into the world, not the couples. And I think that's going to be a meaningful distinguishing factor here as we think about, again, how is the court drawing these lines? How is the court going to uh, sort of figure out where the rules of the road are for other businesses uh, that may not want to serve gay couples? Well, it's interesting because on that point, in the majority opinion, it says that the state of Colorado had suggested that Mrs. Smith offers her speech for pay. So it's not really creative, expressive speech. But the justice goes on to say, well, many of the world's great works of literature and art were created with an expectation of compensation. And that does not mean that they are not uh, privy to First Amendment protections here. And, you know, it's interesting. This is this is really a sequel to another case that we saw. Some of our viewers might remember about five years ago, there was a cake baker in Colorado, and it was a similar type of argument. He said, I want to bake cakes, but I don't want to make them for gay weddings. And in that case, the court actually did something of a punt. They decided not to reach some of the weightier issues that they're going into today on the First Amendment, and they sent it back down on different grounds. And so they didn't go into it. And here today, they have gone all the way, which is interesting just to note how the court's progression uh, has really evolved over the years. Yeah, and actually, that's a subject that Sotomayor visits extensively in her dissent, how this the, the court has changed so much now that the members of the court have changed. Uh, let me bring in Kelly O'Donnell, our senior White House correspondent, into this conversation. When you talk about, of course, the, the political ramifications of not just this decision standing on its own, but in light of the decision, the watershed decision yesterday on affirmative action. Kelly. Well, certainly I would expect from the White House they will note today's date, June 30th, the final day of Pride Month, and that this decision coming at that time is particularly painful to the LGBTQ community because of what the concerns are about how this could be employed in other states, how it could be interpreted, and at a time when support for gay marriage is at the highest that it has been, a ruling like this uh, brings about a lot of concern about how this will impact the everyday lives of gay Americans. Uh, tapping into your conversation with Laura, I was in the courtroom for the oral arguments last fall for this case, and one of the things that Justice uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson talked about is if we're talking about the creative expression of the person who does not want to provide this service. She gave the example of those sort of old style photographs where people are in costumes. And she said, what if the person who was the photographer, the artist there, wanted it to only be white people in that photo when they're wearing costumes like the sort of the old Wild West or something like that? Could you sell that? And Justice Thomas was talking about the fact that this is about public accommodation. It's different than a hotel where you you must serve all people, can't discriminate against anyone based on their status or a restaurant. And that distinction you've been talking about 
what is the creative message behind this website that uh, Lori Smith wants to be able to provide? And how will that be different? And a lot of discussion about is a save the date message on a website uh, the property of the couple getting married or is it somehow a creative expression of the person doing it? And Justice Sotomayor writes that this is discrimination based on message, not status. So there are a lot of concerns about what this will mean for larger implications. And so often with a case like this, it's looking at very specific circumstances, the free speech argument, the artist involved, dealing with what is public accommodation under our laws. But the implications are so much broader and certainly will be perceived by many Americans who won't know the specifics of what was argued in this case and what really brought about this uh, clear ruling from the court six to three. We would expect that the White House would want to comment about this and to try to find other ways to be supportive of the LGBTQ community. And certainly when it comes to the issue of free expression, uh, First Amendment rights are among the most sacred. And certainly we got that impression listening to the arguments in court and at the same time trying to make certain that there is no discrimination against persons who are different in any way or are in a minority status. So this case will have long implications, Savannah. Absolutely. Kelly, stand by there because I should mention to our viewers, we await another a huge decision from the Supreme Court, which is meeting at this hour, releasing decisions on the final day of its term. That decision has to do with President Biden's plan to forgive student loan debt to millions of college students and former college students. So that hangs in the balance as well. But for the moment, we are discussing the case that came out just a few moments ago, where the court has ruled that a wedding website designer in Colorado, who said she did not want to design wedding websites for same-sex couples as a matter of conscience because she does not disagree with it. The court has upheld her right not to do so, citing the First Amendment. Let's go to Danny Savalas, our NBC News legal analyst who joins us as well. I'm reading from the opinion here, Danny, Justice Gorsuch saying the First Amendment's protections belong to all, not just to speakers whose motives the government finds worthy. In this case, Colorado seeks to force an individual to speak in ways that align with its views but defy her conscience about a matter of major significance. The threshold issue here was always, is designing a website a sale of a product or is it speech? And once the court determined that it was speech, the path was clear uh, to conclude that speech cannot be compelled. And that's exactly the issue here. The web designer's argument from the outset was uh, a distinction between I am not discriminating against the people who come to me. I'm discriminating in the sense that I am not choosing to endorse their message. Their message conflicts with my religious beliefs. And as Laura Jarrett pointed out, it doesn't have to be religious beliefs. It's really about compelled speech. So the argument by the web designer was always that, look, this isn't discrimination against people. It's my choice not to speak about a message. And the liberal justices, Justice uh, Kentanji Brown-Jackson, uh, Justice Sotomayor, pointed this out an oral argument, that this is a slippery slope. You can imagine how this can be a distinction without a difference, how very quickly someone can, for example, say, hey, I do these specialized photographs. And while I will serve, say, an interracial couple or a Muslim couple, as soon as they ask to be in the photograph and I say, well, wait a minute, I don't do photographs of interracial couples or anything else that I don't want to do a photograph of, you can see how very quickly uh, the... Uh, considering serving a particular customer can quickly become discrimination disguised as uh, an argument against compelled speech.
Well, that is the big question and one of the, as you note, in the oral arguments, was debated by the justices at length. How far does a, a line like this go? What kinds of goods and services can be denied by citing a First Amendment right in a person's matter of, of personal conscience? I want to turn to Jennifer Mascott. She clerked for both Justice Thomas and Justice Kavanaugh. Joins us now. She's an assistant law professor at George Mason University. How do you view this decision so far? Well, interestingly, again today, we have uh, six justices in the majority, like we did yesterday uh, in the Harvard and UNC cases. Um, and so a clear majority here, different from yesterday, actually, there's not a separate opinion uh, among the majority justices. So they clearly seem to be all aligned, not only on the reasoning like they were yesterday, but also without need for further explanation. And I think that's because in the framing of the opinion at the beginning, the justices are trying to explain and give a sense of the scope here, that Ms. Smith came in and said that she was willing to work obviously with all clients regardless of background and would not discriminate on the basis of protected characteristics. But in this case, the court was conceiving of this as a pure speech case. They use that phrase in the opinion. They see uh, this law in Colorado as one that would have operated to force Ms. Smith to produce messages with which she disagreed as a religious matter. And so I think that was clearly important to the justices here. And just like in the past that the court has decided that school districts cannot, for example, compel uh, people to uh, pledge to the flag or salute the flag here, Colorado cannot force someone to put a message on a cake that is squarely uh, in disagreement with their religious beliefs. Okay. Former law clerk uh, to two of the justices who were involved in today's decision, Jennifer Mascott. Stand by there. I want to turn now to former federal prosecutor and NBC legal analyst Carol Lamb. I mean, the, as always, when you have a Supreme Court decision, it's it, immediately as you digest it, you say, well, what's next? Where's the next line? How far does this go? And, and of course, uh, we'll be grappling with that for many years to come. We will indeed. And this is going to be fodder for lots of lawyers and lots of trials in the future. I think it's very important to note that the majority opinion makes quite quite an effort to say this is really limited to this case and the facts of this case. And it then goes on to sort of uh, criticize the dissents for, for what they say are sort of flights of imagination, uh, all these hypotheticals. And they say those those cases are not this case. You know, don't don't talk about providing chairs. Don't talk about um, don't talk about not providing uh, services to people that we're not talking about here. You know, the the law, the the way jurisprudence goes in the courts is you are only supposed to decide the case in front of you at that moment and not decide other cases. As Danny has pointed out, there does appear that there will be a slippery slope here. There will be a lot more legal challenges to other providers of services in the future who say, um, you know, this is a work of art. This is my speech. The way I tie the bows on the chairs for a wedding is, uh, for example, a, a, uh, a form of expression, a form of, my, a form of my speech. The majority opinion here says, don't go there. That's not what we're deciding today. Carol, thank you so much. I want to turn to Laura Jarrett. You know, to pick up, Laura, on what we were talking about before, I'm looking at uh, Justice Sotomayor's dissent. And in, in, in some ways, and I think you use this word, this case is the sequel to the case five years ago regarding the Colorado Baker. And, and Sonia Sotomayor actually refers to that at the very beginning of her dissent. And she says that what a difference five years has made. Mm. And when you look back and you think about what has happened in the five years since that decision and this one, which is so different, it's that you have three new justices on the court. It's pretty clear what she's saying there. 
Yeah, the makeup of the court is so different, and the tone uh, that these justices have used in today's decision and yesterday's on affirmative action, I think it's striking. Uh, these are justices uh, that clearly are so far apart and really sharply divided on these important social issues of the day. Uh, normally, you know, that might happen behind the scenes. It's playing out in public, in writing, in these decisions, in really powerful ways. And the Justice Sotomayor is making sort of a, a large argument, a sort of the parade of horribles that she lays out that will flow from today's decision. But it's interesting, Justice Gorsuch is, is very honed in on the idea that the state of Colorado stipulated, which means it agreed to a number of things. And I think that that might have tipped the scales in this case. He, he writes here, um, Savannah, the parties have stipulated that Ms. Smith seeks to engage in expressive activity. It's it's pure speech. And I think that that's a, a really powerful thing, because if the state hadn't stipulated to that, if it hadn't stipulated to the idea that she's making customized art, if it hadn't stipulated to the idea that she's a public accommodation, remember, she's not a restaurant. She's not holding herself out uh, to the public in, in that type of way. Certainly, she's offering her services to everybody. But if the state hadn't made those stipulations, I think this might have been a different case. It, it, it brings me back to law school, Laura, where sometimes it's how you fashion the question. And by defining this and Colorado acceding to the fact that this is a case about free speech, in some ways that ended up being decisive to the outcome here. Um, let's go to Kelly Robinson, president of the Human Rights Campaign. And again, reading from Sonia Sotomayor's dissent, she says, the opinion of the court is quite literally a notice that reads, some services may be denied to same-sex couples. The majority vehemently denies that this decision stands for that. This is a dangerous decision. And what it does say is that places of public accommodation can turn away a good or service for custom work. What that means is that gay couples can be denied custom wedding cakes, custom websites. That's a dangerous precedent to set. What I also want to say is that it does not undermine other non-discrimination protections have been guaranteed by Bostock. And I think it's really important for us to make that clarification so that when people are going about their day, when they're going into different uh, public spaces today, when they're applying for employment at different places, they know which rights are protected and which have been compromised based on this decision. All right. Thank you so much. I want to go to Kelly O'Donnell, who continues to watch. And once again, reminding folks, we await another decision having to do with student loan debt forgiveness. But Kelly O'Donnell, um, you've been reading through the, the majority opinion and the dissents. Yes, and I think you reminded our viewers that uh, Justice Sotomayor is reading her dissent in court, and that's part of why there is a delay in hearing the outcome of that second case. But part of what she talks about here is that public accommodation laws are also intended not to just bring about equal treatment for all different kinds of categories of Americans. She cites those with disabilities, for example, but also to ensure equal dignity so that people who might be in that group. And part of what she talks about is those who are disabled and how sports arenas, for example, have had to provide accommodation so that if you are in a wheelchair, you have access to that. And part of that is the dignity that comes with being able to participate without feeling discrimination in a public setting. And she talks about how the First Amendment does is not intended to give a business the opportunity to opt out of serving those who are otherwise protected against discrimination. And so her dissent 
much like we saw with the case yesterday with affirmative action, uh, which speaks about larger implications in American life and what this can mean, will certainly be something that people uh, who are concerned about this uh, opinion will want to read and explore a bit more. Uh, the court, she says, reaches the wrong answer in this case because it asks the wrong questions. That's part of what she is trying to get at here, that this company has never provided a wedding website and has never had its actions tested under Colorado's law. That's part of what she explores here. So she is arguing that this is looking for a case uh, to to have the opportunity to publicly announce that because of her religious views and the use of her free speech and creative artistry in a website, that she would publicly announce that she is against gay marriage and to be able to support, as she says, God is calling her to do traditional marriage. Uh, the justice also writes in here how that kind of an environment can lead to other concerns where she even raises uh, the specter of a social system of discrimination created an environment in which LDP LGBT people were unsafe. And she invokes the name of Matthew Shepard. She says, who can forget the brutal murder of Matthew Shepard, who was targeted by two men, tortured and murdered? Mm. So she's trying to make that case that if people are not treated equally at a place of business, that there are other ramifications that come from that in the absence of being treated equally and the dignity that she argues is intended in the law about public accommodation. Samara? Right. Kelly, thank you. Continue listening if you could. Uh, senior legal correspondent Laura Jarrett is with me now. And actually, as we have this moment, I mean, we have Justice Sotomayor reading parts of her dissent from the bench. And it's worth kind of opening the curtain up a little bit because, you know, you have been there on decision days, as have I. It used to be not all that common that justices would read portions of their opinion or read their dissents. It's become more and more common in recent years. And it, it does speak to something I think you raised earlier, which is the tension that appears between the lines and sometimes, uh, you know, overtly on this court. And it sure seems like that's what's happening at this hour as Justice Sotomayor is reading parts of an impassioned dissent. Yesterday, she went on for the better part of 20 minutes on the affirmative action cases. And she has obviously read dissents before uh, when she's been passionate about issues. Uh, and this one is clearly no exception. Um, but it is worth noting that they, they're doing something in these opinions when they're talking to each other that is different in kind. The barbs that were traded between Justice Thomas uh, and Justice Jackson, the, the newest justice on the court yesterday, in footnotes, uh, no less— were quite remarkable. And I, I don't mean for it to be inside baseball, but I think it does show that even on the court uh, with these justices, these nine justices with lifetime appointment, these social issues of the day, which are debated uh, hotly elsewhere, are debated uh, amongst those justices on, on the court as well. Um, so we will wait to see uh, the student loan decision on the president's student loan forgiveness program. That's the next decision that we are waiting for, the final one of this term, which, again, could likely prompt a lot of strong feelings. People have very strong feelings. Borrowers, more than 40 million Americans, hold some student loan debt. So it's a program that is wide in scope, um, and we'll see whether, in fact, the court allows it to go through. It's one of those decisions, Savannah, that could come down in any number of ways. Um, the court could decide to let the program go through because the people that sued, that states that sued, they could decide that they don't have standing. So even if these justices don't agree with the president's plan to forgive all that debt, if the states don't have standing, then the program would be allowed. Or the court could decide, you know what, the president didn't have the authority to this. This is a lot of money 
This is something with a lot of economic and political significance. And so we're going to strike it down. And so we await to see what the court does as soon as Justice Sotomayor wraps up there on the bench. Yeah. And just to pick up on the point from earlier, she writes in her dissent, when the civil rights and women's rights movement sought equality in public life, some public establishments refused. Some even claim, based on sincere religious beliefs, constitutional rights to discriminate. The brave justices who once sat on this court decisively rejected those claims. So again, when you're talking about Tone. And it is true that it sometimes is the battle of the footnotes, and that's how we can see where the divisions are uh, among the court when you see a big um, landmark case such as this one. Going back, uh, Laura, to this student debt relief case that we wait right now, you just touched on it, but just so folks who are tuning in can understand, you know, there's a hurdle to before you sue on something and you say, I don't, I don't agree with this program. I don't, I don't, you know, it's not constitutional for this reason or that reason. The first hurdle is, do you have any business being in court at all? That's the issue of standing that you so often hear about. And here in the debt relief, uh, uh, cases, both of them present real issues of whether or not these plaintiffs are properly before the court at all. And if the court decides they aren't, then the case goes ahead whether or not, um, excuse me, the program goes ahead whether or not the justices like it or not. That's right. And there are different groups here. Remember, we have two borrowers that sued who actually wished that they had gotten covered under the program. And then we have six red states that do not want the program um, and have sued on slightly different grounds, but is trying to say um, that allowing the program would uh, go forward would hurt their coffers. Um, and so, again, we'll see how it breaks down. It could be the case that they don't think that the borrowers have standing, but they do think the states have standing. But as long as you have one, that's all you need need to have standing. And then once you get into court and you can prove I've actually been harmed, then the issue is going to the merits. And on that one, the Secretary of Education invoked a pre a post-9-11 law called the HEROES Act. And under that, it says the Secretary of Education can make changes to the student loan program. And the issue there is whether it was specific enough. Did it give the Secretary of Education a specific enough authority to go through with this program? Or does the court think, you know what, this is so big. This is so vast and so important. You really needed explicit congressional authorization to do something like that. And so that's what we're going to be looking for to see exactly how the case breaks down there. Absolutely. And we await that decision, which would be the final decision of the term. Our legal analyst, Danny Savalos, joins us now as well. And as you take a step back and you look at how this court has changed um, the ideological makeup of the court, you go a year ago, we had the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. We have yesterday's decision on affirmative action that, while not overruling past presidents, comes very, very close in terms of severely limiting how race can at, uh, be used at all in terms of admissions processes by colleges and universities. What are your thoughts as you think about where the court is right now in American life? Certainly one thing that has happened with the court is that it's become unbelievably predictable, which I think is an unfortunate byproduct of the divide between the conservative and the liberal justices. Uh, we One would hope that each justice would look at each case with their own fresh, uh, neutral eyes. But uh, certainly there are criticisms to be leveled against the court that it has become ideological. And because the majority happens to be of one particular uh, block, now we're seeing a lot of decisions that tend to go that way. Uh, however, we still have some cases that we're waiting on where we might see, I rather think, 
on the standing issue you just discussed with Laura Jarrett, that there is a possibility that the court might find in favor of the Biden administration on this standing issue and may conclude that the states did not have standing to bring this case for a very specific reason. The court uh, and federal courts in general, this is not a typical standing case. This is a standing case where it seems like one of the parties uh, engaged in a strategic move to leave out the party that did have standing, Mohila, and bring it on behalf of uh, the states who arguably did not have standing. Uh, look for the justices to possibly surprise us here. And possibly you may see a ruling for the Biden administration by this conservative majority on the issue of standing, which technically doesn't reach the merits. Yeah, that, that's the Missouri Higher Education Loans, the loan servicer in one of the states that sued. But as you're pointing out, it's the states that sued and not the loan servicer. And so that is it gets kind of technical there. But that's one of the issues of standing that the court will grapple with. Uh, on the larger issues, I want to go back to Kelly O'Donnell at the White House because, you know, you can't talk about this in a vacuum. It obviously happens in a political context. We saw that Democrats felt that their uh, fortunes at the, at the ballot box were quite enhanced by the Dobbs decision. And now we have the affirmative action decision, but public views on affirmative action are quite different. How is the White House handling some of these decisions and what is the strategy there? Well, certainly all of these things have political implications for the Biden White House as we are looking at a campaign year and believing in policies is one part of what the administration stands for. But then they have to put it in the calculus of how is this playing politically? And when we look at things like the student loan uh, case and what the outcome will be today, the administration has said they believe they are on the right side of the law. We'll see what happens here. But we also can look at the fact that the president's approval rating among young voters went up after he embraced this policy and argued that there was a real need for student loan relief to try to help young people who have been burdened by uh, this weight of debt and all the complications that come with it of the original amount that one borrows to uh, pursue their education and how over time that balloons and how given the pandemic and all of the other economic concerns of inflation that that is really uh, an oppressive thing for many Americans and so he wanted to provide this relief 10,000 under certain circumstances is 20,000 uh, when people meet qualifications, including Pell Grants, and it includes 43 million Americans. Well, those who might benefit from that are certainly tuned into this policy and the outcome today. And so we saw among younger voters who can be very important uh, for a Democratic candidate in particular, the president's approval has gone up. So that's something he wants to try to maintain. We know younger voters are among those who are often the least likely to stay or the most likely to stay home, not engaging uh, on voting day, even though they might be very politically active. So that's yeah. part of it. They're already looking at ways to try to deal with uh, the repayment that is scheduled to resume. Uh, we'll see what happens again with the outcome here. But a lot of that uh, is, is tied politically Ke to yeah. the president, including the policies as well. So Kelly, yeah. let me just jump in here because we actually just received this decision we're waiting for on student loans, the Department of Education versus Brown. This is the case I'm reading. That's the one that has to do with the individual borrowers who sued. And this is a quick read 
just of the holding. So we will continue to digest it in terms of the reasoning. But it says that the, res- the, the respondents, the people who sued here, have not established any injury that they suffered is actually traceable to the plan. They lack standing. So now we've had this whole discussion. And now if you're at home, you understand what this means. They're saying the court has no jurisdiction to address their claim. If that holds, this is for one of the cases that I'm looking at right now, if that holds, that would mean the student loan forgiveness program could go forward. But again, we continue to digest it. And it's a pair of cases. So the one case was a set of states that had sued to stop the student loan forgiveness plan from going forward. The companion case were two individual borrowers who either received no debt forgiveness or not as much as they had hoped to get. And they sued. And in that case, that's the one I just read where the court has held that it is uh, they do not have standing. They do not belong in court. They are not properly before the court, and therefore the court will not weigh in on the merits of that claim, which, as I turn to Laura Jarrett, in this particular case, would mean that the student loan forgiveness plan goes forward. So it's interesting that they did this one first, Savannah, because this is the easier case. These are two borrowers who didn't get relief under the president's proposed plan, but want relief. One of them doesn't hold federal student loans at all. She has privately held loans, so that's why she doesn't come under the plan. The other one wanted to get a bump for having um, to, to get a little bit more money, because under the plan, you can get up to 10 grand if you reach a certain income threshold, and then you can get an additional 10 grand if you went to school on a Pell Grant. Taylor didn't go to school on a Pell Grant, and so he didn't get that additional bump, and that's why he sued. But understand, under both of these issues, under both of these arguments, these are people who actually wanted to get their loans forgiven. And so what the court is dismissing them for not having standing is because if they got their way, nobody would get any forgiveness, right? If the actual injunction that has blocked this plan was actually to stay into place, since nobody would be covered, that's why they're dismissing it. Because you have to be able to have the harm that you're saying uh, in court. You have to be able to have it redressed in some way. And so if nobody would get any coverage, then obviously that would defeat the whole purpose since they want to get covered. So that's why it's interesting that they did this one first. Well, Uh, we have the second case now, Laura. I'm actually going to let you... step out here and read it really quickly. I will say that first case was a unanimous decision by the court. Um, It it does say that Missouri, the state of Missouri, does have standing to challenge the program here. And we'll continue to to read it here for a second. Let me turn to Danny Savalo. So on that first case, I think Laura explained it pretty well. That was the easier case to dismiss. Now we got to read the second case, which is the set of states that are suing to stop this debt relief program. We have to see if they have standing and if they do have standing, whether or not the court finds that the Biden administration had the authority to have this debt relief program. And it appears those two questions are answered. And the state of Missouri, the court appears to have concluded, uh, does have standing, even though uh, the argument was made at oral argument that this was the real harm was through Mohila, that student loan servicer. The court has decided that uh, the state of Missouri does have standing, but it appears uh, to have also decided on the second issue, whether the text of the HEROES Act authorizes the secretary's loan forgiveness program. And it appears to conclude that the text text of the act, the federal law, does not authorize the loan forgiveness program. In other words, this came down to really two words, uh, uh, to uh, modify or, uh, excuse me, 
the power of the secretary to modify does not permit the basic and fundamental changes to the scheme designed uh, by Congress. So in other words, when the Biden administration attempted to modify as it was given power to, uh, it did not have the power to do what it sought to do. Uh, In essence, this was too much. This was more than a modification. I want to turn to Laura, if you're ready to talk to me about this, Laura, because it certainly in reading it seems like the court may be striking down the student debt relief program with regard to this case that the states brought. It, um, I'm, I'm just reading it myself, but it says this is all leads the court to conclude that a mass debt cancellation program is one that Congress would likely have intended to do itself. And in such circumstances, the court has required the, the agencies to point to clear congressional authorization. This goes to the issue of, look, if you're going to do something huge like this, the court says it's Congress under our Constitution that's supposed to do it, not some federal agency. And that seems to be what the case hinges on here. The upshot is that this plan is not moving forward for the Biden administration. All it takes is one person uh, to one entity, one state to have standing, which in this case, it's decided that it does. And so then it reached the merits. And on the merits, you're right, Savannah, the court is saying they did not have clear congressional authorization for this. They looked at the statute and they said, it's not going to work for you here. Now, that doesn't mean we should be clear that the Biden administration couldn't go through a different regulatory process. It had always had that option, but it didn't take that route. Instead, it went through a, a different process in order to make this plan go through faster. And I think it's worth noting that um, that this is not to say that you can't have your student loans forgiven forever. If the Biden administration decided to go through that much more arduous process, it could do so. But that does seem unlikely at this point. And we should also mention that this plan was about a one-time forgiveness, a lump sum to lop off your bill. It's not about the payments that have been on pause largely since the beginning of the pandemic. In March of 2020, remember, under the Trump administration, all federal loan, federal, um, loan payments were put on pause. And the idea there was to give some people a little bit of breathing room during COVID to help make sure that you weren't in an economically tough position. Those payments, regardless of what had happened here today, are set to resume this fall. And so it was really two pieces here. The plan that the court was evaluating had to do with lump sum uh, payments that were going to be lopped off of the bill. But the general repayments for many people who may not have gotten enough relief under the president's plan, those are set to resume this fall. And again, the headline here is that the president's student loan forgiveness plan, the larger plan, which affected more than 40 million borrowers, will not go forward. And and it it seems the court is saying they just went too far in interpreting this same statute, by the way, that under the pandemic had the Trump administration pausing loan repayment. The Biden administration then continued that pause. And then last summer, August of 2022, the Biden administration had attempted to use that same legal authority that says you can pause in a time of emergency to say, you know what, for that same reason, we're just going to cancel it and forgive this piece of debt altogether. That is where the court said that was a bridge too far. So let me turn to Kelly O'Donnell, because essentially what the, what this court is saying is if you want to do this, that's fine, but you need to go to Congress. You can't try to do an end run and do it some backdoor way and, and, and override the, the power of Congress. The Constitution requires that Congress weigh in on a matter of such significance. In some ways, Savannah, the court is concluding its term with a very clear message about executive authority. And this conservative court is 
not comfortable with a movement of executive authority, as you're describing, needing Congress to take these actions. In part of the opinion, it says uh, to the to waive or modify does not mean completely rewrite and that the precedent needs to be respected in that way. So the White House is commenting on this. As we talked about, there's a lot of political implications for President Biden, for Democrats and the administration here. And so what we've just learned from White House officials is, while we strongly disagree with the court, we prepared for this scenario and the president will have more to say today. He has not had anything on his public schedule. So that's an indication that the president will be making comments. We saw him do that yesterday as well. The president will make clear that he's not done fighting yet. We saw that as well with affirmative action yesterday, and he will announce some actions to protect student loan borrowers. So this is a policy area where the White House is able to, again, try to scrub the regulations to look for ways where they can take action that does not require Congress. Uh, that may, again, be subject to the courts down the line. And he'll be making it crystal clear to borrowers and their families that Republicans are responsible for denying them the relief that President Biden has been fighting to get them. That is a reference, of course, to they could have gone to Congress if they believed that that would have resulted in new legislation to provide this kind of student loan relief. And so when you look at what the court is saying, executive power has its limits. Uh, that's to be expected with a conservative supermajority court like this. The White House had said they believed it was within the law. The court views it differently. And so now this will have, again, sweeping ramifications for Americans who hold this kind of debt. The political discussion will certainly ramp up because of this. There are those on uh, the conservative side who have felt all along that this action was unfair to those who never sought higher education, but as taxpayers would be shouldering the cost of this, or those who did get loans and paid them back as, uh, as required by that loan contract. So there are strong feelings around this, and certainly the president and his team, we expect he's been being briefed as these opinions have been coming down. They've had time, certainly, to analyze what they thought the different options for the court would be. Uh, certainly, now we will see what the president has to say and what steps come next after this very significant ruling. Well, and, and to be clear, this affects up to 43 million borrowers. However, none of them have ever yet seen this debt relief because almost as soon as announced, it was challenged in court and put on hold. If it had gone through, it would have been up to $400 billion in cost to give this debt relief. Let's turn right to Brian Chung, our business reporter. And Brian, uh, I, 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 this will have a huge economic consequence. Student loan debt is a pervasive issue, a pervasive problem. But it seems today the court has made clear that they feel it's a problem for Congress to deal with. Yeah. As you mentioned, Savannah, I mean, this was a program that uh, some applicants had already filed with the Department of Education to ask for that forgiveness before it was shut down because of the court proceedings. And when we talk about the numbers here, you mentioned, yes, 43 million borrowers could have been impacted by this. But uh, ultimately, there were, could have been uh, about full cancellation for about 20 million of them. Now, interestingly, when the Department of Education opened up the portal in the fall last year, they took 23 million applications. 16 million Americans were already approved as of a tally earlier this year. Now, for what it's worth at the kind of uh, micro level for individual households, this could have been savings of a few hundred dollars per month, depending on the type of degree and the type of debt that you were taking out. 
But for what it's worth, again, this would be so impactful for a lot of those Americans that maybe had been excited about the prospect of having that extra money as a cushion, which could have been very impactful for a lot of specifically low income, in many cases, also minority families. Now, the open question here is what happens with payments going forward? There was the freeze on payments since March 2020 as a result of the pandemic. And what's interesting is that as a result of the debt limit agreement uh, from earlier this year, the Biden administration is not allowed to further extend the pause on student loan payments, but there has been interest from the administration knowing the risk of the outcome of this Supreme Court case about trying to transition payments uh, back once they restart later on this fall. So what could this look like? We'll have to uh, wait for the Department of Education to weigh in. But one possible solution here could be, for example, restarting the interest payments as is required come uh, September, but at the same time, allowing for a grace period by which any sort of missed payments would not have an impact on your credit score. That could be one way that the administration would transition this. But the big takeaway for Americans that are trying to figure out what does the Supreme Court case outcome mean for me? It means that some payments in some form will resume later on this fall, Savannah. All right, Brian, thank you. Stand by. Then we turn back to Kelly O'Donnell, because this, of course, has always had a political context to it, especially as August 2022 is when this debt forgiveness um, was announced and was uh, the Biden administration, of course, accused of handing a freebie, giving a freebie to young voters right before a crucial midterm election. So much of that has played out as being very potent in the political sphere. Young people who saw this as an opportunity to have a little more control over their finances have been motivated by this. As I mentioned earlier, the president's polling numbers among younger voters have gone up after this decision was or this policy was first embraced by the Biden administration. And we see that some of his more favorable ratings are among that under 35 age group. And on the other side, there has been a fierce sense of uh, anger and frustration from those on the conservative side, those who did not attend college or went a trade school route or were not qualified for this kind of relief for whatever reasons about that tax burden you mentioned, the $400 billion potential cost, which would be shared by all Americans. And the administration has argued that there is value to the broader society to reduce some of that weight of debt on those borrowers because then they have money available to spend in businesses, to use to buy a home, all of the things that are the engine of our economy. Uh, that's a fertile ground for debate. And certainly the administration will look for other ways. Uh, one thing, for example, is we know there's already some uh, plan in the works for a grace period for repayment when those, uh, those student loan payments are set to resume after that long COVID break. So people who've been uh, under these rules have had not had to make those monthly payments for a considerable amount of time now. And so even that adjustment alone will certainly have financial implications for those borrowers if they've had the benefit of that uh, money they might have put aside for student loans being available to them month by month. This will be a big change. And so part of what we will be looking to see from the White House today are what plans or programs can they offer to give either some more time or a grace period or those kinds of things. So there's a political argument to make. There's a practical one in implementing this. And then there is uh, the court saying, go back uh, to this case. Is there a new way to approach this from Congress? That seems quite unlikely in the current makeup with Kevin McCarthy as speaker and with uh, not having the kind of margin in the Senate that the administration would need to try and put this forward in the traditional way the court is saying through legislation. Well, and Kelly, you bring me right to the point. I want to wrap up our time with Laura Jarrett on this very issue, because, I mean, if you take a step back and you look at what's been happening, you know, 
administrations prior to this, going back decades now, many administrations have sought to use executive power to do things that they cannot do via Congress because of this paralysis that we see in Congress. And time and time again, you see the court saying, look, you can't go the easy way. You can't go that backdoor way, not when it regards something as significant as this. But I think it really underscores the tension there that when you have Congress essentially not functioning on some of these major issues of the day, administrations of every political party have tried to use other means to get their agendas through. And the court has consistently said, not so fast. This is the court saying there are no legal shortcuts. Uh, as much as you would want this type of program to go through, you have to go about it the right way. And it's worth noting here, the court is very much cued in, Justice Alito here, very much cued in on something you and I discussed before, Savannah, which is sort of the perceptions of the relationships on the court. And at the very end of the opinion, Opinion. I want to just point out, he writes, reasonable minds may disagree with our analysis. In fact, at least three do, meaning his other more liberal colleagues. We do not mistake this plainly heartfelt disagreement for disparagement. It's important that the public not be misled either. Any such misperception would be harmful to this institution and our country. And so it just strikes me when we have two major decisions and uh, such social issues, this is how the court has wrapped up its terms, Savannah. A, a deeply fractured court, but interesting that Justice Alito is trying to say, don't worry, all's fine. This is just what reasonable minds do. They disagree, but they do so respectfully. Laura Jarrett, thank you as always. Much more on NBC News Now, also tonight on Nightly News. Most of you return now to today. I'm Savannah Guthrie. This has been an NBC News special report.